Good to see you. Thank you for those of you who have come out in person on this rainy, dreary evening. Uh, we appreciate your being here, and we also are glad for all those that are watching online as well. Tonight we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, says the preacher, says Solomon. Solomon has been despairing of life, all the miseries that he sees, and the lack of solution for those miseries. Tonight, we see that we need to prize relationship over wealth and status. We saw that Solomon tried to find pleasure in meeting every appetite that he had, using wealth and status as a means of gaining that joy in life, but it proved to be of no value. It proved to be of no worth. It proved to be vain. Tonight, we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Key verse is verse 1, which reads, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. They had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. The emphasis of Ecclesiastes chapter 4 is the lack of comfort that is so often experienced in times of hardship and difficulty. I've listed here a key section. In reality, I don't really know that it is the key section, except that it is so popular and well-known. It's one of those portions of Ecclesiastes that most people are familiar with. And it reads, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fail, excuse me, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who has, is alone, Two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So the theme tonight is good relationships are essential in battling the miseries of this life. In the commentary, the preacher's commentary series on Ecclesiastes, we have this quote. From the institution of marriage to the practice of collective bargaining, Generations of people have tested the truth of these words. One of God's great gifts in helping us deal with problems of oppression, poverty, loneliness, and injustice is the company of others. I thought that was a good summation of what this particular section of the Word of God is about. So we are going to be looking at these verses, realizing what it has to say about Comfort in the midst of oppression. First, from a non-believer's perspective, life is not worth living when they are not consoled or comforted in their misery. We are looking at life from the perspective of a non-believer. Verse 1, it says, and again, I saw all the oppressions, and the key statement there is that are done under the sun, as opposed to that which are done under the heaven. 
Just a reminder that when we have that phrase, it's talking about looking at life from a uh, non-believer's perspective, one that doesn't take God in view. B, here we have the evil of people seeking to get ahead at the expense of others. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions. Oppressions. That's what is in view in this particular section. And I have here that oppressions constitute everything on the spectrum from slavery to, that should not be dipping, the spell checker corrected that, and evidently what I was saying is not a word, but I went to say jipping in line. All right, so yeah, that's a broad, broad spectrum, slavery to jipping in line. But the thought here is it includes anything in which the desires of one person are indulged through the indifference to the suffering that it causes to others. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. The oppressed are people that are in misery, and they are at misery at other people's hands in this particular section in the book of Ecclesiastes. You see, life is a, a spectrum. Sin is a spectrum. And the Word of God tells us that we need to be concerned about the innermost recesses of our heart. So, for example, Jesus says that if a person looks upon a woman with lust, he's committed adultery in his heart. That it starts with that desire for lust, and it can flame up and turn into the fire of actual committing of adultery. Jesus said, you have heard it said that you shall not kill. But I say unto you, that if a person calls another person a fool, that same lack of concern for other people starts as innocently as calling somebody a name that can get to the place where someone actually takes the life of another. So there's a a spectrum of sin. And what I'm using here is something which is really juvenile and unimportant, such as jipping in line, but it's a matter of putting one's rights ahead of someone else's, not rights but desires, ahead of somebody else's rights. It is not caring about what my actions mean for that other individual. They're going to have to wait a little longer. That seems so innocent. But it blows up to the place where we actually have slavery in which one person takes the freedom of another person so that they can be wealthy, so that they have people working for them that they don't have to pay, so that they can accrue great amount of money and get a lot of things done. So we're talking about this attitude of wanting what we want and not caring about its effect upon others. So number three, the great evil is the indifference to the pain and suffering that one person inflicts upon the other. For It says in verse one, again I saw all the oppressors that were done under the sun. Behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. Now this, on the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. In other words, this could be addressed. This could be righted. This wrong could come to an end. That the oppressor has the power to bring that oppression to an end. They can 
act differently. They can change the circumstances that this other person is experiencing. The slave owner can set the slave free. The person who's jipping in line can go back to the place where he belongs in line. It's within his power or her power to do something about it. But they don't care, even when they see the tears of what their actions are producing, this misery, this heartache. So far, far from comfort, far from an attitude that wants to console and help, this is indifference to that misery that is being caused. Application, again, there's a spectrum. Again, there's a spectrum. But one can learn the lessons from good manners. Now, that, again, seems trivial, but learning to open the door for another person so that that person can go before you is an act of kindness. And kindness just makes life a little better. Kindness just conveys the idea that someone is being thoughtful. They're thinking about me. They are letting me go before another, before themselves. See, a society that is characterized by gentleness, you know, Gentlemen is a term we don't hear much anymore. A gentleman is a person who conducts himself in a gentle manner and has good manners. Our society does not prize that characteristic in men. Our society appreciates macho guys, and macho guys are braggarts. They're rude, they put themselves first, and they take advantage of those that are weaker than they are. They are oppressors, and that's what our society sees as not only normative, but unfortunately is good. I remember going all the way back to when Sarah, my daughter, was very young, I think she was in first or second grade. And back in those days, you could still bring food into the classroom if you had a birthday. And the class would celebrate the birthday. Well, one day, there was a student that was having a birthday and brought in cupcakes. Well, there wasn't enough for everyone. It's one of the reasons why they don't do it anymore. But uh, there, were, there wasn't enough for every child. In fact, they were one short. And when it turned out that there was one short, Sarah said, you can have my cupcake. And she handed back so that the other child could have a cupcake. Well, when it came time to have a parent-teacher conference, the uh, teacher conveyed to me a great concern that they had that Sarah didn't have much self-esteem or self-worth. She didn't think of herself and used the example that I just gave 
of the fact that she handed over her cupcake to say she didn't have enough gumption to stand up for herself. I was kind of taken aback. (laughs) And I said in the nicest way that I could, kind of blown away by that example, saying, well, I'm not so sure I'd characterize that as a lack of self-esteem as I would an act of kindness. And I said, I think that's commendable. Our society lacks kindness. It lacks concern for other individuals. Selfishness reigns. And when that selfishness gets out of hand, and someone actually shoots another person over their Nikes, or the fact that they have been gypped in line, it's a sad state of affairs. But see, life is miserable. When there is no one to feel sorry for or console those who are taking advantage of experiencing hardship and trouble. For it says that they had no one to comfort them. There was no one coming to their defense. There was no one that is helping them. And from an ungodly perspective, such an oppressed person is better off dead than alive. Verse 2, and I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate. Again, a rather extreme reaction. And yet, one can readily see how such thinking would contribute to thoughts of suicide. Of, of why people get to that place in life in which they think they're better off dead than alive. That they don't want to go on. They don't want to be in this situation any longer. They don't want to be in this oppression. They don't want to be misery, miserable. They don't want to be unhappy. They just want out. They, they just want relief. And so they even go to the extent of committing suicide. And we certainly can see in our society how suicide is rampant and for reasons that sometimes we would be amazed at. Number two, here's an aside, but I think it's an important one. It must be stressed that this conclusion, namely that it's better to die than to live, was not the same as that of the Apostle Paul when he thought that it was better to die than to live. We're not talking about a Christian perspective in chapter 4. With Paul, we are talking about a Christian perspective. And here's the difference. Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 3. Solomon had been living his life for selfish pleasure. Ecclesiastes 2.10, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep them, keep from them. Sorry, I read this haltingly because I have these passages memorized in the King James, and I think about what it should say, and it's different, so I apologize. Ecclesiastes 2.10, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for my toil. Now, when life is difficult, there's no reason to live. If one lives for pleasure, and there is no pleasure in life, then there's no reason to live. It's as simple as that. 
if my life is consumed with enjoying life and life is no longer enjoyable, then there's no reason to live. That's not Paul's take at all. For Paul had been living his life for Christ in Philippians 1, 20 and 21. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live as Christ. Paul had a reason to live, and it wasn't for selfish ambition and status. He lived for the cause of Christ. Paul was not despairing of life. He saw value in living. Verse 22, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. It's not in vain. This suffering that he is experiencing is not meaningless. B, because Paul had been living his life for Christ, death was preferable to life. He said, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is by far better. But because Paul had been living his life for Christ, he found reason to live even though, even through great pain and suffering. He was living not at the expense of others, but rather in a spirit of sacrifice for the benefit of others. Philippians 1.24, Paul writes to the Philippians, But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. So when Paul says, my life is to be lived for Christ, that means he's taking in view other people and how Paul has been entrusted with this gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and how his life can be a benefit to others. Therefore, he does not despair of life, even though to die is far better for the child of God because they're going to be in God's presence forever and ever. Nonetheless, Paul looks at this life and it has meaning and has purpose. And even though he's in prison, he still sees the value of continuing on. So this is not a suicidal thought in Paul's mind when he's thinking about going to be with the Lord. It's far different when a person is simply wanting an escape from life rather than to submit to the will and purpose of God for what they are encountering. But again, in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, you have to remember that God is out of the picture. And so when a person is not living for Christ, when a person is not seeing their life as a way of serving God and serving others, then life takes on a a far far different value. You see, such people don't think about how their death is going to affect someone else. They just want to be free from the misery and the suffering, the oppression that they're experiencing. E, from an ungodly perspective, an oppressed person would be better off never being born. Enthusiastes 4.3, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Better that they had not been born. Number one, one can readily see how such thoughts could be used to justify abortion. In fact, it often is. If if you stop and just think about how the non-believer rationalizes 
abortion, it affects two things. First, how this baby is going to affect me, how it's going to make my life miserable, how it's going to limit my options, how it's going to create difficulties for me. That's what we just looked at. And then secondly, to bring this child into a world in which that child is going to go no misery and might know poverty and might not have a, a father and this child is going to have a terrible life better that they don't live than they have such a life. That's Ecclesiastes chapter 4. That's the mindset of the world. But you know, as Christians, we have to be careful that these kinds of mindsets are not incorporated even into our, our own way of thinking. So as Romans chapter 12 says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That we always have to guard our thought process, that it doesn't mimic that of the world around us, but it is reflective of what the Word of God has to say. Job is certainly a person who knew great misery. Uh, I think we can say that Job experienced more suffering in his life than any other human being. Satan put every bullet that he could into the chamber to make life miserable for Job. He knew the loss of wealth. He knew the loss of family. He knew the loss of friends. He knew physical pain, non-relenting anguish every day. And Job himself got to the point in which he said, it would have been better if I had never been born. Because he had, uh, point number three, even the godly can reach points due to misery where they wish that they had never been born. Job 3, 1, and after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let this day perish on which I was born, and the night that was said, a man is conceived. In reality, Job's life had been a source of great blessing to many. Job saw his life lived for the benefit of others as the justification for living in Job chapter 31. I'm just going to refer to that. It's a lengthy section. It's a wonderful section for Job reflects on how his wealth and how his generosity had helped so many individuals. He talks about the poor. He talks about the young woman. He talks about all these people that have been helped through his life. And as Job thinks about all the people that have been helped in his life, it takes on a different perspective. He realizes it's better that I had lived. Better that I had lived. From a secular standpoint, how many people know the old Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life? Mr. Bailey gets to the place with wishing that he had never lived. And then the angel comes along and shows him what life would have been like had 
George Bailey never been born. The houses that would not have been built, the people that would not have been helped. And so George Bailey realizes at the end he has friends who are going to help him in his misery. And it turns out that he had a wonderful life. Well, life takes on a perspective as we view the circumstances that we are in. And if we're self-absorbed and fail to recognize the value of our lives for others, it can lead to this place of wishing that we were never even born. So number five, application when one despairs of life to the point that they wish they had never been born, they're forgetting the way that God has and can continue to still use them. But the point is, a person in despair needs a comforter. Ecclesiastes 4.1, the last statement, and they have no comforter. Certainly, God himself is a great comforter. We sang the hymn tonight, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. There is a resource that we have as believers that we should never take for granted. We should never lose sight of how blessed we are that God comforts us in our afflictions. And just remember that that person who doesn't know Christ is not experiencing God's comfort in their afflictions. They are not receiving his grace, his mercy, his help. They're bearing it all alone. Number two, however, the passage before us lays stress on the need for human comforters. And even in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, notice the correction, the uh, progression. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Now this, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted from God. So this comfort that God gives us is to be experienced by others especially those who don't know Christ. We're to be that conduit. We are to be that vessel. We're to be that instrument that carries the comfort to the oppressed. We are seeking to remove those tears. We are trying to console those who are so desperately in need. Number two, life is not best lived out of a desire to get ahead or to put others down. We're back to this oppression motif. And we find out that much of life's labors are motivated by personal self-interest and desire to gain supremacy or superiority over others. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. What a cynical view. Again, it's under the sun. It's not taking God in view. So the motivation 
is envy of, her, of his neighbor. It's to get ahead. It's to be superior to the Joneses. It's wanting status. It's wanting some kind of superiority. And again, that can range from jipping in line to slavery. The, the desire to get ahead, to be exalted, to be important, to be looked up to. Well, in order to be looked up to, that means there are people that are being looked down upon. And that's often what happens when people rise to status. They view themselves as more important than those that are under them. And they take joy and delight in their status rather than in helping others. B, such a selfish motivation provides no meaning to life. End of verse 4. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This kind of lifestyle hurts rather than helps the individual who adopts it. Verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. D, contentment is better than an endless striving to get ahead that causes conflict with others. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Better to have less than to have it at the expense of other individuals and all the grief and all the misery that comes with it. A life of selfishness is going to alienate others. Application. Work done in a spirit of generosity brings joy. When you see your work as not simply a means of you getting ahead, you gaining more wealth, and you rising in status and promotion... But when you see your work as a way of helping others, it brings joy. Two, to do favors for others without pay is a blessing to all. That spirit of generosity, wanting to help others. Three, to volunteer one's abilities and labor for the work of the church is a delight to oneself and others. It provides meaning to life, which is the exact opposite of vanity of vanities, all is vanity. When you see your skills and see them as a way of advancing the cause of Christ, and you're willing to use those skills, those talents, those abilities, simply as a way of honoring the Lord and of helping others, it brings a joy to that work. It's a recognition of God's enabling us, an empowerment, and we can feel good. For we're not now bringing tears to people's eyes, but we're bringing laughter to their hearts and joy as they benefit from what we have done. Number four, the Christian ethic moves from oppression of others to generosity. Notice Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, verse 28, and I want you again to see the progression. Let the thief no longer steal. All right, so here is this thief who steals. He's taking from others for himself. He's oppressing. He's robbing others of what is theirs in order to satisfy his own desires. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, 
But notice the punchline. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. It's not so that he doesn't have to steal anymore. It's not so that he simply doesn't have to take from others, but now he provides for himself. No, that's not the end in view for the child of God. For the child of God, the goal is not self-sufficiency. For the child of God, the goal is to be able now to minister to others in their need so that they don't have to steal, so they don't have to go without, so they don't have to be deprived, and so that they are not motivated to sin, but rather to give glory to God and rejoice in God's goodness. Number three, from an ungodly perspective, work has no meaning when it does not profit others and is not shared with others. Ecclesiastes 4, 7, and again, I saw vanity under, sun, under the sun. Solomon looks at a person who is all alone in life. One person who has no other, either son or brother. Nevertheless, this person gives himself or her and number three, the person is so busy and self-absorbed that he or she does not take the time to stop and ask the question, why am I doing all of this? Why am I making such sacrifices? Who's going to benefit from it? Notice the bold in Ecclesiastes 4.8, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? Never stops and says, where is all this leading? The result is a futile, unenjoyable life. End of verse 8. This also is vanity and unpleasant business. So as we think about this application, the first thing we want to note is sometimes people are alone through no fault of their own. Okay? Uh, that's very important to recognize. You notice it says in verse 8, one person who has no other either son or brother. You certainly cannot be responsible for whether you have a brother or not. That's not your decision. You didn't decide the size of the family that you grew up in. All right, That's your parents. Uh, you have no control over whether you have a brother or not. <clears throat> But the point is, in A, that they greatly desire, intim uh, excuse me, some people are alone through no fault of their own. They greatly desire intimate relationships with others. This passage is not intended to add to such people's misery. So tonight, my heart goes out to those that are alone, those that don't have friends, those that don't have family, those that don't have a support group or mechanism. But again, this is from under the sun, takes out the support that we can have through the church and through God's people, etc., etc., etc. This is from under the sun. But we should be sensitive to the difficulty that many experience. And so I would say to you that, again, that's part of our recognizing the misery and suffering of those that are oppressed through the fact that they have no companionship and we should reach out to such people. But D, our passage is focusing on situations. 
in which people are choosing obtaining things or stats <coughs> over relationships. <coughs> Excuse me. That's the perspective from which this passage is coming. It's coming from the oppressor's side of things. So there are people who choose a life of being alone for the express purpose of increasing their wealth and their status. Number three, people who sacrifice family for the sake of career will experience a sense of futility. It will bring a a measure of misery to their life. Some people choose not to have children because of the expense involved or the limitations it brings upon their lifestyle. Some people divorce over finances. Some people marry for money. We need to value people more than possessions. And what good is the wealth when a person needs a comforter? Relationships are far more valuable than possessions. Verse 8, there was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked. Why am I depriving myself enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. It is important that we do not limit our understanding of relationships in this passage to simply marriage relationships. We're going to move to the section in verse 9 where it talks about two are better than one. And we hear that so often in a marriage uh, context that it's easy to jump to marriage in this passage. But if you notice in verse uh, 8, it's a person who's all alone. He doesn't have a son. He doesn't have a brother. Doesn't have doesn't have family. It's not just talking about marriage. It's talking about people who are void of relationships. And the reason they're void of relationships is because of the choices they have made, namely to oppress others, to alienate themselves, to take advantage of people in order to get ahead. Well, obviously, those people are alone. And the point is, they're going to be miserable. They may be filthy rich, but they're going to be miserable. Back to It's a Wonderful Life. Remember Mr. Potter? The banker? Rich, wealthy, and miserable because he didn't have any friends. He had done nothing to help others. And he couldn't understand a George Bailey. F. It's important that we do not limit our understanding of relationships in the passage to simply marriage relationships. People cut themselves off from brothers and sisters. People who have brothers and sisters, but never visit them, never write them, never contact them. Some cut themselves off from meaningful friendships and fellowship with others. They just don't have time for such things. For there's a sadness of late of life that accompanies such choices. Number four, it's far better to choose companionship than to choose being alone. Now I'm just listing these because, again, this is the most common section of Ecclesiastes, so I'm not going to expand it, I'm just going to list it. 
Hey, two are better than one, for they can get more accomplished when working with someone else. Verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their, their toil. And uh, I, I would love to expand upon that, but I'm trying to move through these passages rather, rather quickly and succinctly and to demonstrate their relationship to the other verses. But this good reward for their labor is that it has meaning. It's not just that they're more productive than they are, but there's also now value in what they're doing. It's in working together. You know, one of the great joys in volunteering in church is the fellowship that you have with each other as, as you do the work. It's the laughing together. It's getting to know each other better and more intimate. B, two are better than one for the help that they can provide to each other. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. C, two are better than one for the comfort that they can provide for each other. If two lie together, they keep warm. How can one keep warm alone? D, two are better than one for the protection that they can provide for each other. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. In the broader context, we're talking about oppression. We're, we're talking about misery and heartache. We're talking about a person who is alone and has no one to help them and no one cares. Now you move to verses 9 and following, and it's talking about the benefit of having someone with you that cares. The someone that can alleviate some of the oppression and suffering. And E, three are better than two. And though a man might prevail against one or two who is alone, two withstand him, a three-fold cord is not quickly broken. And again, so often is the case in marriage sermons, and I've done it myself, and you get to this, and I talk about the Lord and how he can help us, and the three-fold cord in that sense. But in reality, in this passage, it's simply talking about two are better than one, three are better than two, four are better than three, five are better than four, six are better than five, seven are better than six, eight are better than seven. The more the merrier. The more the merrier. And the psalmist said that children are an heritage of the Lord. Blessed is the man who has his quiver full of them. Full of them. A large family is a blessing. Friends are a blessing. It's better, it's better to be with others than to be alone. Don't choose to be alone. Number five. It's far better to take the advice of others than to pridefully choose to lead alone. A, choosing to lead without taking advice is worse than not leading at all. Ecclesiastes 4.13, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. And in the context, the advice is about life. The advice is about relationships. 
The advice is about what's meaningful. And the conclusion is, it's better to be poor than to be a king who won't learn. Better to be a poor than have friends. Better to be poor than have compassion. Better to be poor and extend comfort and receive comfort than to be a king. B. There are those who may overcome great obstacles and make it all on their own. Verse 14, for he went down, for he went from prison to the throne. Though in his own kingdom he had been poor. See, such people, though surrounded by crowds, are nevertheless still all alone. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who came laughter after will not rejoice in him. It's possible to be in a crowd and still be all alone. To be a crowd and still be all alone. Last week, we were in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 that talked about the seasons of time. To everything there's a season, a purpose for every event under the heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what was planted, a time to, time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to cast away, and a time to gather, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear, a time to sow, a time to love and a time to hate. We saw that it's important the decisions you choose and you make. You know, Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And yet was alone. It's not just numbers. It's not just numbers. It's relationships. And uh, those of you who have been around here a while know that my take on the book of Song of Solomon is a little different from most people's take. Because I don't think it's a celebration at all of the marital relationship of Solomon to the Shumanite woman. I think it's a lament. I think it's her sadness, if you read it very carefully. The tears, for she longs after him and he doesn't come. They have no meaningful relationship. It's all physical, but no relationship. Read it carefully. Relationships are what's important. Premarital sex, that's not a relationship. Relationships are what's important. Conclusion and application. We must always guard against the selfish tendencies to put our desires ahead of the needs of others. 
That is poisonous to every relationship at all levels. B, when we are despairing, it is not the time to be alone. Oftentimes, people separate themselves from the very help that they need. It's not a time to crawl up into a ball and isolate yourself from others. When you are in need, that is the time to reach out. That is the time to let people know that you are suffering. That is the time that you seek solace. That is the time that you prize and value your relationships. See, as God's people, we are to be ready to help each other in time of need. Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Meaning, that's the ultimate duty of the child of God, to help one another to the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. It's so different from the world. So different from the world. And it's the essence of what Christianity is all about. When asked, what is the great commandment, Jesus said, thou shalt love the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You should be looking out for others. Not yourself. Not taking advantage of people. Using people. Manipulating people. But helping people. Consoling people. Advancing people. Helping them get ahead. Helping them to overcome the oppressions that they are experiencing. D, we need to realize what a joy and comfort we can be to to people's lives. You know the book of Job, I hope. And at the end of Job's life, after he's restored to health and all those good things, we read in Job chapter 42, verses 10 and 11, and Job prayed for his friends. Wow. Job's now praying for his friends. The Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. He was the wealthiest man on the face of the earth. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before they came and ate with him in his house, they comforted and consoled him over all the trouble that the Lord had brought upon him. They comforted him. They consoled him. That was a part of God's restoration of Job. It wasn't just the word that came to Job. It was the friends and family that had been alienated from Job. Now they return. They comfort Job. They console Job. And E, we need to realize how important tangible demonstration of gifts are in granting comfort to others. And all his brothers and sisters, everyone who had been known before him, came and ate with him in his house. They comforted him and consoled him over all the trouble of the Lord that brought upon him. And now this curious, which I find curious statement, and each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. This is after God had restored Job's wealth twofold. Remember, Job is already the wealthiest man on the face of the earth. Now he's doubly 
the wealthiest man on the face of the earth. So why do you give the wealthiest man on the face of the earth a piece of silver and a gold ring? To tangibly demonstrate your concern and your care for that person. It's an act of selflessness. Selflessness. They were willing to give to this rich man. And they, being less well off, without question, without question, less well off, they wanted to show him that they cared. They wanted to console him. And they gave him a gift. The old adage, it's the thought that counts. It's that spirit of a willingness to deprive myself for you. That's the essence of this passage. Moving from oppression to self-sacrifice for the benefit of others and the glory of God And that's a life of meaning and joy. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your many blessings. We thank you for the rich friendships that we have. We pray for those who are lonely. We pray for those that feel oppressed. We think of those today that are miserable. And Lord, first of all, we confess if any of that is of our own doing, our own selfishness, our own ambition getting in the way, and trampling on others. Lord, forgive us and help us make it right. And Lord, just give us a sensitive spirit to those that are weeping and who have no comforter. And Lord, also give us wisdom that we make good choices in our life, choosing friendships over status and wealth. I'm not wanting to get ahead, but reaching down and wanting to raise other people up. Give us a spirit of generosity, of truly concerned about other people's well-being. Even as Ephesians told us of a thief who no longer stole but worked honestly with his hands in order to be able to give to those that are in need. Lord, thank you for the opportunities that you give to us to give and the joy that it brings to our life and the joy that it brings to others. Thank you, Lord, for that opportunity of being a minister of your grace and your comfort to others. In Jesus' name, amen.